thank you so much, and Ralph, and thank you, worship team, for so faithfully preparing. You could not choose more appropriate lyrics and the songs for a text that we have this morning. Well, you might have looked to your sermon note spot and thought you were getting off Scott Clean today, but there is an insert, if you haven't already noticed it in your bulletin, that's got our notes phrased in a worldview lens type of way, meaning we have these five characters, as Roman preached to us last week, these five groups, the Jewish authorities, Lazarus, Mary and Martha, Judas, and Jesus. And each of them, we find the answer to the questions that they would give, I believe, we could summarize it with a great amount of confidence, what they would say is the power and purpose of man. Likewise, who do they say Jesus is? What of his power and what of his purpose? What of the power and purpose and ability of spiritual evil, spiritual forces? What can they do? What are they working today? What are they scheming in? And ultimately, what is the future holding? What are God's plans and what are our plans for the future? What do we want to do in our life? So this morning, as we approach this row by row, my prayer for us is that in one, we would consider if we were a sixth row added, what would we respond What do you believe about power and purpose and plans for your future? And finally, that God would shape us, that the Spirit would teach us, that He would convict us and conform us and give us joy and peace as we learn from these contrasting lessons from everywhere, from the Jewish authorities who are certainly attacking and aiming and desiring to kill Jesus, to Mary and Martha and Lazarus and how they prize and spend the time. So let's begin, church family, as we look first and foremost at the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities. We might answer, if we were to ask them the question, what do you believe the power and purpose of man is? They would respond something like, God's word and way are final for us. But sometimes you have to get a little messy. Certainly they prized the responsibility that God had given them. Jesus already mentioned that, and he quoted from Ezekiel earlier of the fact that God has appointed them as shepherds. They were to feed the people of God and to steward over them well, and yet they were as hired hands. They neglected their responsibilities. They had the authority, but they abused the authority. They did not seek to shepherd and feed God's people in prayerful intent, but by political scheming. So when we look at Israel's history, they would often make deals with pagan nations from Egypt to others, and that they would begin to worship their gods. And like the blind and deaf and mute idols of Isaiah 6, so too the people of God became deaf and blind and mute, and they hardened their hearts against God, led by the leaders of Israel. And this political calculation continues on in that God is before them. The Son of God in flesh is before them, and how do they handle him? Well, they believe, sure, God's Word is true and valuable as they taught the people the Torah, but sometimes you've got to get a little messy. Sometimes you've got to get a little messy, and the little messy to them meant it's time to kill Jesus. And not only do we need to get messy and kill Jesus, but what good does it do if we want to put out a fire to stomp on the fire if there's a coal over here? That's also burning up as Lazarus had become a passionate testimony of Christ's power. It was undeniable. Even the Jewish authorities had to look at this. 
the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sadducees denying the resurrection of Christ among another, another of distinctions, and the Pharisees holding to the law, maybe kind of like the, some have called it kind of the blue-collar group of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. But they're united, two very different parties, almost we might think like political parties that make up this group, are united in believing that Jesus is dangerous. Not only is he dangerous, but we might have to get a little messy to take care of him while we still can. As we think through the Gospel of John, an avalanche of belief is building. People continue to believe in him, and the more works that Jesus does, the more that he teaches, the more verbal interactions that the Pharisees have with Jesus, the more Jesus walks away honored, and they walk away shamed. It's this avalanche of belief. And now you've got Lazarus. What a perfect witness, right? If we were to have a revival, I mean, I would totally schedule Lazarus. If Lazarus was here, I'd be like, Lazarus, why don't you speak? Because you were dead for four days, and now you're alive because of Jesus. What a powerful testimony. And many are coming to believe, perhaps many like Nicodemus, those that are Jewish teachers are coming to believe in Jesus because of the powerful testimony of Lazarus. So what do the religious leaders do? They think, well, we're going to have to get a little messy. And that may include killing Lazarus. Ironically, Caiaphas, the high priest, he speaks forward a word of God. He makes this incredible statement. Look in verse 49 and 50. He rebukes the rest of the Pharisees with this sharp tongue. You know nothing at all. And then look what he says. Nor do you understand that it is better for that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And we as believers read that, and what do we say? Amen. Let's practice it. We say what? Amen. We get, we get into it. Let's do it one more time. I hate when people do this buildup, but I'm doing it anyway. What, how do we respond when Caiaphas gives these words? that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. We say, amen. As believers, we say amen, but that's not how Caiaphas meant it. He meant it in the way of, we don't want Israel to be gone because Jesus is causing so much trouble. Rome will come in and take power away from us, and then we'll never be able to control the future. We have to maintain power or all is lost. Israel will be hopeless if we don't rule. And if we need to kill Jesus and we need to kill Lazarus to keep political power, then so be it. They take this utilitarian view, this philosophy view that the ends justifies the means. They say the worst thing that could happen would be we would lose power. Therefore, we got to get a little messy. Sorry, Lazarus. Collateral damage. Here's how D.A. Carson summarizes Caiaphas' words. I love what he says here. He says, Caiaphas spoke with calloused opinion. But when Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking. Even if they were not saying the same thing, Caiaphas spoke as a prophet, partly by virtue of the fact that he was the high priest and partly by virtue of the fact that it was that faithful year when Jesus was to die. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes is that the best of men have always been afraid of little sins. The best of men have always been afraid of little sins. 
The Pharisees in Israel through her history have a track record of being friends rather than fearful of little sins. Sure, they would claim to to be right on the majors, but the minors in this case were massive compromise of what God had given them and the responsibility before them. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Their plans for the future deduced very simply, we can control our future if we can just clean up this mess. That mindset for the Pharisees will continue on after they kill Jesus. And the text has already made clear, correct, that Jesus, nobody will take his life from him, but he will do what? Lay it down. They murder him. He lays his life down. They take his life. I think we're safe to presume they take Lazarus's life as well. But I want to write down, I want to have you write down a text of homework this week. Acts chapter 4, verse 5 through 21. We're not going to read it together for brevity's sake. But Acts chapter 5, and in that scene, Caiaphas is back on the scene. And Peter and John have been working miracles and proclaiming the gospel. And in God's providence, they heal this man. And it's, and it's kind of a replay of what we see in this chapter. People can't deny the power of what's taken place as they're doing miracles in the name of Jesus, under the authority of Jesus. And, and people are coming to believe and they're repenting and placing their faith and trust in Christ and coming to newness of life. And what they long to do, Caiaphas and the Pharisees don't learn from their lesson. Instead, they desire to kill them. They threaten them. And they want to kill the man that was, that's healed in, in Acts chapter 5, or in Acts chapter 4. But they can't, because too many people are believing of this testimony. It's an incredible scene, and one in which, in our lives, we're wise to ask God, in my life, is there something small in which I've made a friend with a little sin that maybe I feel like is extorting me and it's giving me fear in the future? The Pharisees were right. The Jewish religious leaders were right in that Jesus is dangerous. Jesus is dangerous to their idols. Jesus is dangerous to our idols, even as believers. He's dangerous to our self-rule of our life. The call to repent and to abide in and rest in the love and word of God means that we're not ruling our life, but living in joyful surrender and submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is dangerous. As he threatens their idols, they respond in kind. And in contrast to this, we have Lazarus on the scene. Lazarus. But if we were to ask Lazarus, what's the power and purpose of man? I think he would respond to obey, to know, to recline with, and to testify of Jesus. If we said, why? What power does Jesus have? Well, he said, well, I was dead, literally, for four days, and now I'm alive. My body was inanimate, decaying. And Jesus spoke, his good shepherd spoke, And even though his body was inanimate, innately he responded by coming to life. That is how powerful Jesus is. That is how great 
God is. That even the dead come to life. The bond between the shepherd and the sheep is so close that death cannot separate him. As Jesus is alive and Lazarus is dead, Jesus speaks a word and Lazarus comes back from Abram's bosom and he's alive. It is unbelievable, the power of God. And, and you, and we as believers, those of us that know Christ, whether you're a teenager or whether you're a child, I guess this is a really small teenager. I'm realizing my, <laughs> if you're a teenager or you're a senior adult, I don't even know what I'm doing at this point. All right? But the point being, if you've come to life in Christ, you have spiritually been born again from death to life, responding to the voice of the shepherd as innately and naturally, for he will gather his sheep from all the world. And nothing can stop them. Even death cannot stop the power of God. And each of us, as we go forth this week, and brothers and sisters in Christ from this community that leave their local churches this morning and go forth for the rest of the week, we're to live as those who have been spiritually brought to life reflecting not the ways of the world, but reflecting Jesus, speaking like Jesus, looking and sounding differently, thinking differently than we do even a year ago or a year from today, more and more like Jesus. That's what we see in the life of Lazarus, a longing to obey and recline with and testify of Jesus. Now, if a human being alone by their own might and wisdom and strength were to pin this, I don't know about you, but I would want to know more about Lazarus. I kind of do as I read the story. I don't know if you're the same, but I read this thinking it would be incredible if we could hear from Lazarus. Like if we were in a, a room, I'd be like, Lazarus, what are your thoughts? Since you were dead, dead for four days, and now you're alive. Like, can you tell us about that experience a little more? Like how much chocolate was there? As you interact with older people or people of, whose health is failing, and you hear them speak of, of things like, if I just had one more healthy day, I would go and do this. Well, Lazarus gets one more at least healthy day. And what does he do? He doesn't start a book tour. Heaven is for real, for real. Abram's bosom is for real. I don't know what he would call it. The life and times of Lazarus. The resurrection story. I have got a dozen dad jokes written down for this, so you better engage me or I'm just going to keep pelting you with these ruthlessly. But he doesn't. Lazarus's longing is not pride or greatness. He gets another day on this earth, and what does he do? He sits beside Jesus, reclining at table as a guest. He's not out to make a name for himself. He's out to be with Jesus which I think speaks multitudes as he chooses to sit with Jesus. Isn't that what heaven is all about? He was with Abram's bosom waiting for Jesus to come and lead them to heaven with the other saints, longing for Jesus, waiting for Jesus. And yes, he physically raises from the dead. And where is he at? He's doing exactly what he'd want to do, which is to be with Jesus. Believer, there is no greater lesson that we can learn today than the joy of being with Jesus and becoming a footnote to the story of history. 
Lazarus doesn't become the main figure. The blind man didn't become the main figure. The lame man doesn't become the, lame, the, the main figure. The woman healed of bleeding doesn't become the main figure. Jesus is the main figure, and Lazarus is joyful to become a footnote of the testimony of God's power and greatness and calls others to believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God, the resur- one who has res- the resurrection and the life. That's the good news for us, believer. That's our purpose. And so what a prayer for us to pray this week. God, would you give me joy and peace being a footnote for your glory? For Grace Bible Church, would you give us a joy and peace in being a footnote for your glory, testifying of you? Nowhere else we'd rather be. We go from Lazarus and we look to his sisters, Mary and Martha, incredible women, so wise, what is Martha doing? Those some full details of the timing of the meal and who exactly is throwing the meals. It's still a little left in the shadows. But what we do know about Martha is that she assumes the highest position in the kingdom of God. Servant. She serves. That's all we see in this account of Martha serving faithfully. And what about Mary? Well, verse 3 Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. I think all of us have been around somebody before that put on a little bit too much aftershave. You know what I'm talking about? Nobody's looking around. That's good. That means you're all probably pretty good dose this morning. Smells are powerful, aren't they? So powerful. I mean, a smell can bring you back to a memory. Do you know how many times people would, when we had, when our boys were real little, we were told, oh, I just love the smell of babies. Which before we had a kid, I thought that was the weirdest comment I've ever heard in my life. But I get it. It brings back a flood of memories, doesn't it? The power of smell. This isn't just a smell, but this is an unbelievably expensive smell. And in shocking form, perhaps 300 days of worth of earnings, she is pouring out upon Jesus' feet and wiping it up. Why? Because he's worth it. Because she knows who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. He raised her brother from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. He's worth the best that she has. So it appears as an unbelievable waste, an accurate perception of who Jesus is would show that it was actually the wisest investment of resources because he's worth it. Jesus changes the perspective of values. What in this scene appears to the room, or at least some in the room, as a massive waste as they're pouring out this nard for us looked up from India. Incredibly valuable. It looks wasteful, but to not do so would be like being in a desert and choosing not to drink the water. It would be a waste not to drink the water. This incredibly valuable fragrance would be wasted if not lavished upon the feet of Jesus Christ. What a point of conviction. As I read this in full confession as we approach Judas, my heart as a kid and now as an adult, when I hear this story, I resonate more with Judas. 
my reflex is that seems like they could have done a lot of other stuff with that. And yet, Mary and Martha worshiping. Just as the man who was blind and come to believe in Jesus, worshiping. Because of the true value of who Jesus is, He is worthy of sacrificial service to serve until it hurts, faithfully stewarding. The lesson here is that nothing that we do for the glory of God serving Jesus can be wasted. Even if no one finds out about it, it cannot be wasted. You cannot pour enough water out on a person in a desert. We cannot give of our goods and resources and giftings and talents and spiritual gifts that the Spirit has allotted to us. We cannot serve Jesus enough with those. We can't overstate who Jesus is. It's not possible. It can't be wasted upon Him. That's the good news we have in the Word of God. Practically, here's one thing I would encourage is I'm so thankful that we're able to gather and you parents that are able to bring your little ones. I'm so thankful that you do. I want to share an illustration I didn't share in the, in the 9 o'clock. Uh, never underestimate what your faithful serving and giving in the view of your kids and talking about it with your children, how that can shape them. When I was late middle school, we came to church. I don't know if we had a revival or a Wednesday night service. I don't know what it was. But we had two long, like a shotgun-style sanctuary, two long sections. And we always sat right here, always, like the fourth row back, because that's the best spot. And, but we came late that day. I don't know what we were doing. We might have been golfing or something. I don't know. But we came late, and we sat in the very back left, very back row. And we were back there, and it was done, and we were passing offering plate or passing offering plates around, and it was pre-COVID, okay? Uh, and they were passing it around, and I had that pit in my stomach, like, ooh, like this is going to be weird when they pass it. Should I put my hand in and act like I'm giving something? As a kid, I remember thinking this. And I saw my dad beside me, and he pulled out his wallet, and he gave me, as he, he just took his cash out, and he gave me some. And I'm like, this is great. He didn't make me put it in, but he put his in. And then I wanted to put mine in. And afterward, that really impacted me. And he talked to me when we got to his truck after the service. And he just said the Lord had convicted him in the past of his giving that he felt like he was only giving for tax deduction benefit, tax, because it was tax, you know, off your taxes. And so he would give in cash so that he wouldn't be able to claim the deduction on it. The Spirit put that on his heart and shaped him. I heard that as a middle school boy. I have never forgotten that to this day. I've forgotten a lot. But I've not forgotten that. That shaped me as much as any sermon as I can remember. So parents, involve your children in sacrificial service. Let them see you serving. Same with grandparents. Let them see you serving joyfully of your life and resources because He's worth it. That's the spirit of joy that the Spirit uses to shape us in great and bountiful ways. As we shift in this massive contrast from hearing about Lazarus and Mary and Martha, we shift to Judas. Judas, the one who John has made clear from the very beginning, Jesus knew that he did not believe. And if we were to ask Judas, Judas, what do you believe is the meaning and purpose of life? I think he would respond in this way. I exist for my personal pleasure, and if you threaten that, I will put you in your place. I will put you in your place. 
Judas, what would you say about the power and purpose of Jesus? And, and just like many in the crowd could not deny what they saw, even though they still feared the Pharisees more than believed in Jesus because they go right to the Pharisees to tell them what's going on, that Jesus is here. This man cannot deny what he's seen Jesus do in his miracles and his teaching. Jesus is blameless. But I wonder if Judas thought that Jesus, he couldn't be the Christ because if Jesus was, if Judas, if Jesus was really the Christ, he would know that Judas didn't believe. And he certainly wouldn't have allowed him to be in charge of the chair of the finance committee. Right? He certainly wouldn't let him be in charge of the money bag because he's been stealing from the money bag the whole time. And this causes Judas to view the scene of worship as stealing from Judas. Judas is threatened, John tells us. His very purpose is get pleasure, and money is the lubricant to getting the pleasure. And so he tells him very clearly. He rebukes her publicly in this shocking way. Look what he says. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas, in my opinion, has laid a trap that is more persuasive than any trap that the Pharisees and Sadducees have sat to this point to set. We've seen the Pharisees and Sadducees, they keep asking these gotcha questions to get Jesus. And Jesus just goes right through them. And now imagine the scene in the room. They're sitting low, they're reclining at table, which is a much lower seating area. And Mary comes along, certainly has to be on her hands and elbows, dousing Jesus' feet. The smell would be so strong. And Judas says, perhaps what others are thinking, what are you doing? Do you not care about the poor? That could be sold, and the poor could be fed. He sets the ultimate trap. What do you say? If you're Jesus and you say, actually, you're right, Mary is immediately shamed as being irresponsible. What an irresponsible woman. And Jesus is shamed because he allowed such an, a bad act of stewardship to take place. And if he disagrees, Jesus and Mary hate the poor. What a trap has been set by Judas. See and talk about how Jesus responds to it. But notice the use of shame and manipulation. This is so powerful and so serious for us as we listen to this. This couldn't be more applicable to life and culture. It's the language of the serpent who shames. And Adam, when he falls, he begins to reflect the serpent. Shame language is used to manipulate, to deflect this language marks a fallen, blind culture, an idolatrous culture. As the Pharisees were idolatrous, and as Judas is an idolater, 
in his love of money. So too, our culture is filled with this language. I want to speak to some things very directly and hear compassion but honesty in my voice. Be careful, believer, to give in to these antonymic pair games of our culture. This, either this or this. Be careful of the traps of our culture. Do not get pulled in and lose your testimony. I'll give you one example. and You could think of a dozen more. If someone does not protest or doesn't change their social media profile picture, it does not mean that they are racist. And on the other side, if someone does protest or does change their social media profile, it does not mean that they hate police or that they're Marxist. These traps exist everywhere. And if you walk in them, they will swallow you whole. Now this is a Hallmark holiday. Happy Father's Day. Right? Hallmark holiday today. Not on the church calendar, Hallmark holiday. But let's speak to it. Because we affirm biblical marriage. We affirm God's design of fatherhood. And we affirm from the very beginning, yes, God, he is the father to the fatherless. And the church is charged to care for widowed and orphaned. And we embrace that. But God's design in marriage is uncompromisable. He has designed one man and one woman to covenant together under the leadership of God that the husband would love and serve and protect his wife and shepherd his wife and care for her and be willing to lay down his life for her as Christ laid his life down for the church, that she would love and serve and submit to him as though submitting to Christ's lordship. They would love and serve one another and be a testimony of God's faithfulness in a darkened world. This is God's design for marriage. And we cannot and will not compromise on that. We don't have the authority to rewrite the gift that God has given us, no matter what culture may shame. And we hate no one. But that's the language of our culture. To believe and to stand on the scriptures, God's words teaching of marriage, we will be met and are met with slanderous accusations that we are haters of people. And it's the deceitful tongue of the serpent. And we must not res respond in slanderous kind. So in our culture, we say very clearly, unquestionable affirming the value of black men and women and boys and girls created and loved by God in the image of God of full value and dignity and worth and it's heartbreaking that that many would perceive that they're not perceived that way by others and loved and cared for and the wounds that have happened in the past that's undeniable As believers, we're discerning and we stand in the Word of God. We value every life created the image of God and we pour our lives out in joyful service to the Lord. Saying, Lord, pour us out for your glory. And in that, it causes us to stand in contrast as the world wars and despises the ways of God. And one example of this, it, we must stand against organized groups as our culture wages war against the biblical teaching of life and, and, and sex and marriage and the purpose. And so groups, you may not even know, 
but groups like the Global Network in this way, of just titled with so cleverly with the name Black Lives Matter. We affirm that every life matters, black life, every black life matters, every minority, every person matters, but the organization, the Global Network, has in her statement of faith that they are diametrically opposed to the nuclear family of husband and wife, that they're committed to the downfall of that. So where do we stand as believers? We must stand and worship and pour our lives out at the feet of the Lord with all that we have and all that we are, unashamedly realizing that the voice of the serpent that comes through Judas's lips towards Mary will never stop. And the temptation to cave and to compromise will never end. And the slanderous remarks will never stop. And what should we do? We should listen to Jesus. Because what does Jesus say to Judas? Be quiet. Mary, you keep on doing what you're doing. You continue forward. Leave Mary alone. Stay focused on worshiping. I'm worth your best. I'm worth your life. When it comes to Father's Day, what's the charge for us as men? We have been blessed. I think, as a matter of fact, I want to ask you a question, if you would. Whether it was your biological father that showed you the faith and was a true father of the faith, the way the Lord ordains, and none of us does it well. All men come short. But if God has given you a father in the faith spiritually to train you up and show you the way of the Lord, would you raise your hand and affirm that? He's given me multiple fathers in the faith in my life to ask me hard questions and to shepherd me and steward me. This is the charge that God gives us. Men, this is the charge that God gives us to grow spiritually in the Lord and to shepherd others and to model the way of what it looks like. 1 Timothy 5.2 of treating older women as mothers in the faith and younger women as sisters in the faith. So so there's a ton of just great ministries. Mission Act was wonderful this week. Adopted Jack, sign up, get involved, pray that the Spirit would show you opportunities to come alongside. And yes, we are our brother's keepers to love and to serve. Glory gang, there's so many ministries. And ask that God would give you a position to shepherd and love and care for and serve young men and young women in the faith, pouring our lives out with an intent focus for the glory of God. When it comes to Jesus, the power and purpose of man is seen very clearly in his affirmation of what Mary is doing, where Lazarus is in his presence, resting at his table, with Martha who is serving, being with Jesus, being near Jesus. I asked the question earlier, if you've ever talked to somebody that if their health was failing, if they could go back and get one more day, what would they do? Lazarus answers the question, he would rest and recline at table and testify of Jesus. And now we could ask Jesus, who knows his life is, his days are coming, the time, the appointed hour is coming. And what does he do? He reclines at table fulfilling the will of the Father. He interacts with Judas, rebuking him, leave Mary alone, and receives worship from his people. 
Jesus is worthy of our life. He says, my friends, they get it. And he loves to be with his gathered people. Because the greatest thing that the Lord can give us is himself. The greatest that we can worship is the Lord. Everything else will come short and lead to idolatry and blindness and foolishness. But to worship the Lord joyfully and sacrificially and to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ from all different backgrounds, from all different generations, is a beautiful testimony. And the Lord delights in it. Plans for the future. Roman told us these plans last week as he led us through John chapter 11, 25 through 27. What are the plans for the future for Jesus? He said in that text, I will be buried, but I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That is the good news. To worship, and to believe, and to rest in, to recline with Jesus. To be a footnote of testimony for his glory. There is no greater aim but to believe in Jesus the Son of God, the resurrection, and the life. If you don't know Christ, confess Him and abide in Him and receive forgiveness and adoption and righteousness as you're clothed in Him. And for those of us that know Him, let us go forth joyfully, sacrificially serving and asking the Spirit to show us places and people to serve and to love and to point and to testify of Jesus. This is our life. Oh, how good our Lord is. Amen? How good our Lord is. It leads us into our next steps. If my name was included on the list, as we said at the very beginning, what would my answers be to these four questions? And the purpose of this is not to shame us, but to realign us. To remember that we rest in Christ. He's worthy of our life. And in the fourth question of your future, what does your future look like? Well, you can think through 10, 20 years. But let's think of this week. Our second next step, how is the Spirit using this passage leading me to abide in Christ this week? Who might you serve? Who might you reach out to? Who might you call? Who might you walk slowly with or around? He's worthy of our praise. Power, purpose, and plan for the future. Oh, Jesus, give us wisdom. Let's pray before we stand and sing in response. Lord, you are good. Your wisdom confounds the wisest and cleverest of men and women. Jesus, you are dangerous to our idols. We have spirit that you would convict us We thank you for your word, the opportunity to sit under it. Father, as we meditate on it, would you guide us this week? Lord, we see in the middle of this story, this plot driven and impacted by death. Lord, as Justin Beatles, a prior pastor, has said, death is not our friend. 
Father, I lift up to you those in our community that are hurting and grieving, those that are near death or have experienced the sting of death. Father, I lift up to you the young woman, Margot. God, would you heal her? Father, we do look forward to the fact that you are Jesus. You are the resurrection and the life. Our trust is in you. Help us to be joyful, to serve sacrificially, to proclaim the goodness and truth and the peace that is available through your Son, Jesus Christ. We do love you. We pray, God, that your peace and joy and love would abound through us this week and even in our song now as we sing in response. In Jesus' name, all God's people said together, amen. Would you stand with me?